You're listening to Food for Thought, the OFM podcast, brought to you by Vespa, nature's catalyst for optimizing fat metabolism. Hey, and welcome to another Food for Thought podcast. I'm here, Peter Defty, with uh, Naomi Land from Australia, from Tomorrowland, and today we're interviewing the ever-enduring, and that's no joke, Jeff Browning. Jeff, uh, welcome to the show, Food for Thought. We're trying to you know, provide some nutrition for people's brains. Thanks, Peter. Happy to be on. Welcome, Jeff. Thanks, Naomi. Well, um, now that you're on, we'd love you just to start in telling us your story. Oh, um, let's see. Well, uh, if I start at the beginning, um, I grew up uh, in Missouri on a farm, big commercial farm, 700-acre farm. So I've seen the, the commercial side of farming, and it's not real pretty. Um, but uh, And that's what's driven me to be a more clean eater um, later in my life. What um, what sort of farm, what kind of operation were you in Missouri? Were you just corn and soybean? Yeah, yeah, typical corn and soybeans, wheat, milo. Um, we had um, hogs and cattle. Um, 2,000 head hog operation, commercial hog operation, and about 100 head, 100 head of cattle. You were doing the you were doing the factory farming. Totally, it was totally factory farming, and I didn't want to go back. It's a pretty dirty, dirty business, so I I didn't go back um, to farm, and uh, neither did my sister. And uh, we no longer have the farm. My dad got out of it in the 90s after when I was in college, but that's when I decided to pursue a career in graphic design. Oh, I can see one of your photos behind you. It looks amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's one of my old, uh, I was a fine art minor, fine art minor. So um, that was a hobby before ultra running took over all my free time. Very unusual to be creative and sporty at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> totally. <laughs> oh, come on now. Come on. <laughs> so what got you into running and, um, and clean eating and why did you make the change? Well, I mean, I grew up run, playing, you know, traditional sports in the 80s. So football, you know, American football, um, uh, baseball, basketball, track. Um, was pretty good at track, but the, where, the town I grew up in was really big into football. And I was so focused on football, I couldn't see that I had a little bit of running talent. So um, I went to college just to a, a big university, University of Missouri, where I met my wife and uh, went after an art degree and um, and got into mountain biking, um, worked at a bike shop. Um, and that's where the seed was planted for longer distance running. The owner was, had run Boston marathon 25 times. And that kind of got me, you know, in the back of my head made me say some point I'm going to run a marathon. I'd run some five K's and 10 K's in college just for fun, just cause I was working at a running slash, it was a specialty running store and bike shop. So you know, I worked the sales floor and sold shoes and we were the, the specialty running store in town. So um, that was my kind of early intro to running. Um, but you were also doing the mountain biking. So you, you had that exposure to what the trails offered, right? Totally. And that's what I was really attracted to was trails. And that's why I love mountain biking and being in the woods. And I grew up, you know, on 700 acres and running free everywhere I wanted to, going to the creek to meet neighbor kids and, and, uh, um, running around in the woods all the time and and actually riding three wheelers back then the yeah, before very, they were outlawed <laughs> before they were outlawed um, yeah so I, I I got through that you know and not and didn't didn't die so um anyway 
um, kept doing that, and um, and then you know uh, got you know college. I really got into mountain biking. I started racing a little bit um, just for fun. Um, you know, based on just some peer influence from other guys and mechanics in the shop and stuff like that. Really consider, didn't really consider myself a runner. I was running that whole time, but it'd be like 20, 30 minute runs, you know, a couple days a week, three days a week. And then I'd bike the rest of the time. And uh, little did I know I was building an endurance engine that whole time, but just didn't think about it. You know, I was training like crazy on the mountain bike. And then um, after college, moved to Denver and got a job for an advertising agency and was pretty much like that was my every spare second was trying to mountain bike um and mountain bike in the mountains and get up get up you know in the front range and ride you know four or five days a week um and then i would jog my dog you know 20 to 40 minutes um a few days a week and uh and did a lot of backpacking and that's kind of was my intro to endurance training and didn't even know i was doing it i was just going out in the woods and having fun and um I really got into ultra running when I moved to Bend, when I moved to Oregon in 2000. Um, I trained and ran a half marathon and then a marathon. I had a buddy who had introduced me to Western States 100, um, who had run a few few marathons and run 150K, and that's what got and got. I, I heard about Western States 100 and I wanted to do it. Um, something inside of me just said wanted to do it, like check it off a bucket list type thing. Um, but then realized I couldn't get in. You had to qualify with a 50 miler back then, and then you had to go in the lottery. And so, which was a blessing in disguise because it made me have to wait. It, I'm very impatient and it made me have to wait to, to get in that race, which made me have to train and run other 50 Ks and a 50 miler and one in 2001 to get into the lottery in 2002. And I got into the race back then it was 50% chance, which is unheard of, you know, and now, what is it, like 11% chance or something to get in in the lottery? Less than 11%. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So so back then, I got in, and, and and by the time I hit the start line, I was pretty hooked on ultras. I, I was hooked on trail running. I really liked it. I liked how simple it was compared to mountain biking. I didn't have to have all the gear. You didn't have to worry about breaking down and being stranded, unless you were injured, obviously. But, but otherwise, you know, if you just go out and run, you can go run in the mountains, and you don't have to worry about you know, in mountain biking, you have to worry about um, restrictions on trails. So, you know, you can't go into wilderness areas and that kind of stuff. And I like the aspect of trail running where it just opened up to anything. Anything that you would normally backpack or hike, all of a sudden you're running in a day. So that was really appealing to me, the simplicity and the kind of the, the you know, minimalist kind of attitude of it. I thought it was cool. Yeah, there's so, sort of a very nuanced, uh, but very natural, you know, primal draw to that. Absolutely. Because when was that seminal moment when you made the connection that everything you were doing on mountain biking, all of a sudden, you know, connected to the running? Because it sounds like you were doing like two as a separate thing. You were doing the mountain bikes, which was on the trails in nature, but then your running was kind of like road running. When was that like aha moment? Well, I started dabbling in trail running in Denver, but I didn't, it didn't really, it didn't really click. It didn't click until I moved to Bend and Bend has so many trails and, and we have such good access and tons of single track. That's when I really started connecting. When I started training for ultra marathons in 2001, that's when it started clicking. I started saying, huh. And then I found that I was like more, more wanted to be running than biking. Um, 
just because I didn't have to worry about, you know, making sure I had good tire pressure and making sure my chain was lubed and making sure it didn't break down. Did I have all the tools with me in case I did break down? You know, all those things that you don't have to worry about running. You just grab a water bottle, a couple of gels in your pocket and take off. No shirt. <laughs> That's because we're simple, right? <laughs> totally. I, mean, I, I, I We're having this on, ongoing discussion with some of our team members. Uh, we're trying to Naomi's trying to train Ariel to become a triathlete and we're saying, no, 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 you, you're going to have to come do epic mountain runs with us. <laughs> <laughs> and she's realized that she is a runner, you know, she did the triathlon on the weekend. She did a great time, but um, her running was definitely the fastest out of the three legs. But that's okay. There's room for improvement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, you know, it's it's complicated. But you know, it's it's kind of interesting because no, that's because you make it complicated. That's because that's cause, <laughs> Naomi. It's because I'm a Neanderthal like Jeff. We want to just yeah. take, take our clothes off, beat on our well, chest, and run got through your the mountains. Clothes off, you know. I know. <laughs> this is how I work, right, Jeff? This is how we roll. <laughs> totally. It's totally. So, I, that's so, what I'm gonna do. Take off my take off my shirt and beat on my chest. <laughs> <laughs> so so the moment it hit me was I was running because, you know, it was like I was like approaching 40 or I'd turned 40 and I was joined a running club, started running, you know, because I figured it was the halfway point for me. And some people started trail running and I thought, oh, this makes total sense because I grew up like you with a, on a small farm, but we grew up hunting and, and we spent a lot of time on, you know, hunting is just on the trails chasing game just like you you go out in the middle of nowhere with your buddies and 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 go to the creek and and do stupid shit on your bike and try and kill yourself and you know the things that happen growing up on a farm they have now like made it illegal to do right i mean people like you and me should be dead according to the lawyers yes <laughs> but um but yeah that's when it clicked for me and and i think that that's that's something that i wanted to kind of parse out with you because I think that there's something very natural about this whole trail running. And I think that that allure has been portrayed probably with a little hyperbole, but it, the essence of it got captured and like born to run, you know, yeah. that's why it was a bestseller because there is Absolutely. something very, very natural and, and alluring to it, even though it's so far removed from most people's existence. Yep. I a hundred percent agree. Yeah. So m moving on, um, so you so you got into Western States in what year? Two thousand and three. Two thousand and two was my first hundred. Yeah. And that was your that was your that was your Virgin hundred. Yeah, first hundred was and Western how did States. You go? Uh, pretty good. I mean, compared to what I know now, horribly. But um, I did I did happen to have a good, you know, second half. Um. Little rough, I had really rough time around, you know, uh, Devil's Thumb, middle part of the race when it was hot. <laughs> the canyons. <laughs> yeah, the canyons. And back then, I, I just, I, I really hadn't got a hold of good clean eating yet. Um, I was still, back then, I was trying to be a vegetarian, and my wife and I were having some, you know, I was losing muscle mass, and I, I wasn't that healthy back then. Was Scott uh, an influence on you becoming a, a no, vegetarian my wife, at that point? No, more my wife and I kind of, my wife became a pretty dedicated vegetarian. I would say I was more of like, uh, I was more of, say, a pescatarian. I still ate fish a little bit and um, ate eggs occasionally and stuff like that. But I, I totally, you know, I wasn't like hardcore or anything, but I, th that was, you know, 94. Five percent of my meals were vegetarian, um, and I just was. It, it did not jive with my metabolic system very well. When I look back, you know the the issues I was having back then. 
Um, I just was losing muscle mass. I'd always been very cut and pretty, pretty muscular. And I had lost a lot doing a couple, you know, a year, year and a half of trail running and ultra running at that point. So by the time I showed up the start line, I definitely was lean, but I wasn't like, I wasn't ripped or anything. Like you were skinny fat. Yeah, exactly. And I, I just, I didn't feel great. And so yeah, exactly. (laughs) And so I, I, that, that race, you know, ended up being okay because I ended up running just under 24 hours, 23, 38. Um, and I rallied the second half when the heat kind of dissipated, you know, I think I left Forest Hill at eight o'clock that year. Um, Oh wow. You left after me. And so I was really, really, I rallied, um, and ran well in the, in the, in the cool of the evening and into the dark. Um, but you know, I mean, I was stoked and I got, you know, I got the, my silver buckle and I was super psyched and then I was hooked on ultra running. Um, but then, you know, right after that, we had our first kid, like three weeks later, my, my wife was really pregnant and, um, we had our first, our, my first son was born three weeks after Western States in 2002. And that's when we really, uh, about 18 months after he was born, he was kind of raised a vegetarian kid the first 18 months. He was having all kinds of issues. He was, he was not growing that fast. He was in like really small percentile of like size wise. Um, he had some rampant tooth decay early. Um, Ooh, yeah. Yeah. And so like all kinds of stuff and that's, and my wife was having trouble with like health issues too, with like, you know, milk drying up and like losing a ton of weight. She got down to like 80 pounds, 78 pounds. Did she get gestational diabetes during the first pregnancy? No, she didn't. But, you know, and, and she did, she added back in a little bit of fish during pregnancy, um, like salmon only, but, but she totally like wasn't doing very well. And we came across the Weston A. Price Foundation and got hold of a naturopath in Connecticut and started working remotely with that naturopath who got us on, got her on cod liver oil and got us on clean meats and, uh, and got hold of Nourishing Traditions cookbook, um, the Sally Fallon book. And yep. that's, when, that's when we really started like pursuing clean eating in about 2004. So, uh, you know, I think early, maybe early 2004 is when we really started, maybe 2003, end of 2003. I can't remember exactly. But that's when, and she turned it around. Like she was 80 pounds and she should be, you know, 105, 110 pounds. And she like, she just like couldn't even go up a set of stairs, you know, she couldn't bound up stairs or anything. It was pretty, it was pretty sad because she had been a division one full ride gymnast in college and uh, was, you know, super fit and it just wasn't jiving with her system either. And so that's when, when we made that change, that's when we both started feeling better. My muscle mass started to come back. Hers came back. Like she get put her weight back on her. She had no problem breastfeeding. So that was like, that was kind of a, a, a early aha moment that, you know, nutrition could heal you. Um, and so that's, that, that really got us on this kind of trajectory that led us to the current path we're on now. Yeah. So Naomi, to, you know, can comment a lot on that because, uh, she had these sort of issues too. I mean, it was, you guys got pregnant. She was even having trouble getting pregnant. Right? Well, we had, we had the same problem. We, it took us 10 months for our first one. Um, but then after being on the diet, he told us to be on this diet for, uh, you know, for a year before we tried to get pregnant again. And we waited a year and, and she, when she first, we had blood tests done and 
she was in the tank on everything. Um, and then she, we waited a year and had blood tests done again, and she was totally topped off in everything. And then we, that's when we started, get, we tried to get pregnant. We got pregnant the first month. Wow. That's amazing, isn't it? And people don't realize that um, food is so associated with um, not only um, infertility, but other health problems as well. Absolutely. So what, what made you have that aha moment? Was it going to the nutritionist? Was it um, reading things? How, how did you feel? Well, I would say we went to a traditional nutritionist first before we went to the, the naturopath in, in Connecticut. Um, they told us we just needed to eat more calories. You know, that, that traditional way is like calorie, you know, it, it's just calories are calories. So they said, don't be afraid to eat ice cream. I had done enough like my own research at that point to be like, uh, whatever, like that is not right. And so that, you know, we tried that for maybe a few months and we, and she wasn't gaining any weight still. And so that's when we were like, okay, this isn't working. And we luckily had a buddy who introduced us to the Weston price stuff and, um, who had had some health health issues himself and had, had turned it around with kind of primal eating. And, uh, and so that was the early years. And then I was, you know, during that time I was an ultra runner. So that for a good decade, you know, we kind of did that, did the whole, you know, nourishing tradition style of eating, soaking our legumes, soaking grains, you know, that kind of stuff, sprouted grains. But, you know, I hit my forties and I still had, I started having some little health issues here and there. One, you know, one was this candida overgrowth that I had in 2015 that really flared up and just really, and then, and I was really frustrated because I was like, man, I'm, we eat really well. I eat, you know, I don't know what's going on. And then, you know, on some research, that's when I found kind of, I think I think it was a paleo primal forum. And I found something on like, you need to quit feeding them sugar. And, you know, you're, you know, carbohydrates basically are glucose to the system. And that's all it sees it as to the bloodstream. And, 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 you know, I, I guess the simplest the simplest analogy that really spoke to me, and that was this was kind of my aha moment for this for eating primally and like kind of paleo style, um, and and cutting out you know this cutting out cutting out grains and sugar, um, was that the body you know homeostasis is about a teaspoon of glucose to, in the bloodstream, and and one whole wheat bagel is eight to ten teaspoons of the system, and that made sense to me like that that just spoke to me. It was simple. It was a simple analogy that said, Hey, this is how your body looks at, at carbohydrates. And, um, it's just glucose in the bloodstream and too much glucose causes an insulin response, spikes your blood sugar. Right. So that made sense to me. I have a dad that's type two diabetic and, uh, um, and, and interestingly, a side note, I went home for a week in April and, and, uh, I, I, I was, you know, I'm so strict on how I eat. I bought all the groceries and I cooked every meal for a week for my parents. And my dad's blood, sh my dad's blood sugar is normally 170 to 200 oh every my God. day. And he, and he's doing like, you know, the, the ADA recommended, the diet. ADA recommended diet. And it's 170 over two or, or 200 somewhere in that range every day. He takes it every day. And, uh, the whole time I was there, it never went over 107. 120 and under is normal. It was never went over 107. Most of the time it was in the 90s. 
One time it was in the 70s and I gave him a half a piece of orange and it went right back up. So he was look, feeling a look at, look at, he was looking a little like out of it. And I said, are you hungry? And he said, yeah. And I, you know, he kind of would look kind of drunk or something. And I gave him some orange, peeled an orange and he ate the orange and he felt great. So like he was, and he was really alert. And when I first got there, he was out of it. So like that was kind of like a reinforcement that I was doing the right thing. Yeah. So has he changed his eating styles now? Yeah. Um, I gave, I went to the grocery store, his local grocery store, and I made him a, a master list of everything he could get that was kind of on, you know, paleo primal. I do basically generally primal blueprint style of eating. So, you know, that's the kind of like, cause I do do some dairy, raw dairy and, um, culture dairy. Um, my family does pretty well, well on it. So, um, but that's kind of what I gave him is that kind of general list of what he could get. And then, uh, he sticks to that list and he's still losing weight and his blood sugar has been pretty stable. And, um, and he said it's been really stable and he's continued to lose weight. So, um, and he's had, you know, he's, his damage has been done already. He's, you know, he's lost, he had a heart attack in 2011 from it, from diabetes, unchecked diabetes and, um, has had a stroke. So he's in a wheelchair. So He's got a pretty rough life, like right now. You know, it's, his quality of life is not great, but um, this definitely makes him more, you know, with it. When I, I, I definitely noticed a difference as far as how how well he was with it when I was there. That's amazing. Um, so, how do you feel at forty as a elite athlete of a hundred mile ultra specialist? Um, I feel really good since making the switch. You know, this you, you know, I've now have three hundreds and a hundred k under my belt since. And a big, you know, 142 mile adventure run in the desert in in May, um, under my belt, un, un, eating this style, you know, kind of low carb, high fat. Because um, you made the switch, like like you were doing primal, but then you sort of we we came we started talking what in December? Yeah, December first is when I really made the like switch. I went really strict paleo for a, while, a little while for a couple weeks, and I think about two weeks into it, you and I started talking, and that's when I started we started putting the OFM thing together, how to use it with, with endurance training and strategic use of carbs and adding, a, adding back in strategic carbs around harder workouts, longer workouts, and that kind of thing. And still using the simple, simple kind of carbohydrates during, during an event and during long runs, um, kind of that little, little trickle of glucose to the system. Um, and that's, that's when I really like, you know, I, I lost eight pounds. I, I didn't realize how bad I felt until I felt clean. Um, you know, I felt like, you know, I felt I was pretty fit and healthy and all those things, but, you know, and I was winning hundreds every once in a while and still winning races, in, you know, at 44, but still trying to, you know, um, I just didn't, you know, I, I didn't realize how, how kind of sick I was until I got clean. Well, yeah, until we tweak some things. Yeah, just just as an aside, let's stop for a second on on this this part of the discussion and get back to it. But I do want the audience to know there's something I think Carl Meltzer mentioned that you have like the best hundred mile win record or something. What's what? Explain it to me exactly because you you a lot of people don't get. I mean, I was actually talking to a good friend of mine the other day, and she said, "Yeah, nobody hears about Jeff Browning ex- till now, but except that he's run a lot of hundreds, he's won a lot." Um, and, I think my I've won fourteen out of twenty five hundreds. Yeah, so you're you're apparently Carl noticed that your your win record for hundreds done is a 
pretty good one percentage of wins to hundreds right something like that you have the highest totally yeah <laughs> yeah 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 and i don't know if it's the i don't know if it's the top one or if it's got any kind of you know he and i joke all the time because he always sends me texts you know after i win one he'll he'll send me a text and just tell me how many more i have to go to catch him um he's got the most win records yeah then, he has the most but, but he's you had the best, a lot of best, hundreds yeah but you've had the best like win to start ratio or some some silly thing like that yeah some some weird 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 uh uh esoteric uh formula that has you <laughs> at the top so we're you know we're talking to a pretty elite guy here naomi um, so um yeah we started talking in december and started getting you tweaked for hurt and i i just remember tell us about that first race when you, when you, you know, you said you started, let's take it back up. You started feeling like, wow, this, I, I never knew I could feel this good, but then that led to hurt. And I just, I want you to tell people about that because I, I've heard from you, but I've also heard from people like Jesse and Kira. And, and I know that, uh, Meredith Terranova was even paying attention. Uh, totally. a, a lot of people were paying attention to you, but, but what struck me were, were, were the pictures I saw from Hurt. And, and I mean, you look, you look freaking ripped, like scary. Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I, I didn't realize how much inflammation, like kind of systemic inflammation I had going on, but I had quite a bit and I, and I didn't really realize it. Um, you know, I lost in the first two weeks, like cutting out grains and sugar. In the first two weeks, I lost about eight pounds and then it just stabilized. I stabilized kind of at, my, my high school weight, you know, when I was like 18 or 19 years old before I drank any beer. Um, and, and so I, and I've stabilized at that weight ever since I've been about 138 pounds, 137, 138 pounds. Um, since I lost that eight, first eight pounds. So I was in the full one for mid one forties, you know, racing most of the time over the last decade. Um, and, uh, but, but, you know, going into hurt, one thing that I really noticed was like, I had a lot of energy like crashes during the day and I was using caffeine to kind of keep myself level. You know, I was kind of abusing caffeine at times. Is um, this in, or in all your races or it wasn't, was it hurt or not or all your races? Oh, well, you know, I used caffeine in, in hurt and, in, but not as much as I normally would, but I'm talking about in just everyday life. I, I had so many crashes, but once I kind of did that initial adaptation phase of like, Restricting carbs, letting that metabolic fat pathway to fat burn open up. Cutting back really on get, the caffeine, yeah. Yep, cut back. I cut out caffeine and all the way to hurt. I, didn't I remember we talked about that because you said you were a real coffee addict. How did you go with that? Oh, that's it was, really hard the, when you the first week. Because I, you know, I'm kind of like I'm like all, both feet in when I decide on something. So like I just jump in the I'll just jump in without checking the water level. Um, so once I realized that I had read all the stuff, at, you know, on OFM and I was like, whoa, this, I was telling my wife, you know, not only will this help my candida issue, but like, I think this can give me an edge, you know, in training and, and racing hundreds. And I was like, oh, then I was all in. And so that's when I was like, I'm cutting out everything. I'm cutting out sugar. I'm cutting out grains. I'm cutting out legumes. I'm cutting out caffeine. And so I did all of that until hurt. I was super strict. And what it did was it created new habits in my lifestyle, which was really good. Um, I did find that I missed coffee. So I still have coffee now. I've added it back in, but I only have a cup or a cup and a half a day. So, you know, with 
heavy whipping cream and coconut or MCT oil and, and, and that kind of stuff in it. So kind of more of like a bulletproof style coffee. Um, but, but I mean, like up until that point, I was really strict and then showing up to hurt. Um, I had all these backup plans because I'd been training and I'd been going on a lot less calories per hour, but I was still nervous. I didn't know because I'd had such success at hundreds and I hadn't really had, I'd had GI stress, but it wasn't major. So it was manageable during the race. And so in the past, so I was really nervous to change my, my, my regimen of what I did in hundreds, but I knew, you know, talking to Zach Bitter and to Peter that they're like, you know, you don't have to do as many carbohydrates and just try it. And I was doing it in training and I was, I, I kind of was trusting it, but I, there was still a part of me that was scared to let go of that. And so once I got in the race, I started doing it and I stuck to it and I was feeling awesome. And I kind of taken the lead acts, you know, just kind of out of, I was with the leaders and, um, on the climb out of paradise at mile 27, I like totally like was just running comfortably in front of those guys. I got in and out of the aid station before they did. And I turned around about halfway up the climb and I was by myself and I dropped those guys and I was like, huh, that's weird. And, but I wasn't even trying to push or anything. So I was like, okay, just calm down. I, I had a race plan to kind of start pushing at like mile 47 and, and make a move. And I was like, okay, just wait till 47, wait till 47. And when I got into 47, I saw Jesse. And at that point, Kira had dropped out. So Jesse was crewing for me and my buddy George was supposed to, but he got food poisoning the night before and, uh, from eating fish tacos and like, so it was like a whole debacle and I was just going off drop bags basically. And Jesse said, I'll try to help you if you're around where Kira is. But he ended up being like, I'm, you know, he told me, I'm like, uh, he's like, I'm crewing for you now because Kira's out. And, and when I left that aid station, I had to confide it in him. Like I was really nervous about all these backup plans I had to have extra calories in case I needed them. And when I left there, I think it's, I, we even have, there's a video somewhere floating around where, where I was like running out of the aid station going, it's working, dude. It's totally working. Like I'm so surprised and like freaked out and like so stoked that it's like actually was working. Like I was just really, I mean, I wasn't necessarily surprised because I'd been working in training, but just that was like kind of confirmation that what I was doing was right. And that, that I, I was on the right path. And, and I just never felt bad in that race. Like I never had any lows. I felt like I could push anytime I wanted to. And, and I had such a good lead by the last lap. I just cruised the last lap and enjoyed it and talked to people at the aid stations and, um, ate bacon and, and just enjoyed myself. Cool. Cool. So, and that led to a little celebrating and you kind of found some limits there. I totally did. So that week, like, so at that point, that was only about seven weeks kind of being really clean and, and trying to like keep this yeast overgrowth at, in check. And I hadn't had any flare-ups in seven weeks. And I'd been having flare-ups like probably five or so, well, I'd say five, maybe six flare-ups in 2015 of can, the candida issue was really bad. Um, massive like GI, inside my GI tract, itchy, like couldn't get to it, you know, just stomach itched, but I couldn't, it was in the inside. Um, it was pretty gnarly. And, and some, you know, other like external you know, rash type symptoms would come out. And, 
and it was really gnarly during those times. And, and like, I couldn't sleep sometimes and, you know, I'd miss a night of sleep because of it. Cause I could not, it just itched so bad. And so that was, you know, after that race, I was just so stoked and I'd been so strict for seven weeks that I kind of let loose. And at the, you know, award ceremony, I think I like minded down to a whole bottle of wine. And, uh, was there any beer involved? There was not any beer in, I, I think I drank one beer, but I drank a whole bottle of wine and, but I didn't, I still ate really strict, you know, food wise. I didn't cheat with sugar or anything like that. But about a week later, I, it totally flared up or maybe less than a week. Like it, I had another flare up and that was the last flare up I've had. Like after that, I was like, okay, no more full bottle of wine. Like I don't normally drink that much, but I was just so excited to like, like be out on top of this issue and like feeling good. Yeah. Yeah. And you, and you weren't totally wrecked at the end to where you couldn't drink a bottle of wine. You were no, like, No, I good. felt great. I mean, like the, not having the inflammation that I normally have after a race. I mean, Zach and Peter both had told me like, get ready for the recovery. It's like off the hook. And I was like, yeah, yeah. But then afterwards, I, I, I actually was taking snapping photos of my ankles and feet and knees because normally I have had pretty massive swelling in my ankles and knees after a 100 miler in my lower legs to where I had to wear compression for like three days straight and sleep in it and everything because it would ache so bad. My knees would throb. Um, but I just kind of chalked it up to being part of like post 100 mile, you know, just damage because it's so far. But after that, like I, I kept taking pictures and texting him to my wife and being like, look at my ankles. They're not swollen. And Jesse and Kira and George were all like, oh my God, look at your legs, dude. Like, you can see your veins and your ankle bones and everything. And it's like, you just ran hundred miles yesterday. Like you've never been like that. And they've been around me for several hundred milers where they saw that kind of damage. And they were like, this is not the normal Jeff Browning that we know. Like, this is crazy. And, and that's George, my buddy, George, who's a Pat works at Patagonia. He was like, he's crewed for me a bunch. And he's like, dude, I want what you got. Like whatever you're doing, I'm doing. And so well, and Jesse got on it too. He's yeah, been knowing, he's known about the Vesper for years. Yeah. And totally. And he's did the same thing. And so they, they both like started, I think Kira and Jesse started the next week when they got home, as soon as they got home, I, George started that day. He started the day after hurt. He was just like, I'm in. He had just had food poisoning and he was just like, he's like, I'm in. Um, and, and so he goes, I'm taking it as a sign. And, uh, it was pretty funny. Um, and so it, it was just kind of one of those, you know, uh, that's when I like, was like, whoa, like the, the, the recovery, like I could do air squats, like the day after the race and not, and I was just a little sore but I wasn't crazy sore or anything. And it was pretty amazing. And, and I don't think I could have done the double the way I did it this year with Western States hard rock without it. Um, given my past kind of how, how wiped out I am after hundreds, um, and how much swelling and inflammation I have. Um, that's the big difference is just the recovery is pretty, you just don't get the inflammation you normally get. Yeah. Well, let's fast forward to that. Let's fast forward to hurt from hurt to um, pre-Western states and then Western states and then on to, to hard rock. Let's talk about Western states first. Well, I, I did a tune-up race in April in Kansas, um, Free State 100K. 
um, and got the course record and won that race and felt really good, recovered really fast. Um, and then training kind of went okay. And then I had a little bit of like, I had to do a little tweak in May. I was a little low and Peter, you, you and I discussed this and you kind of got me on the right track. Um, we, I was having some cramping issues. Um, I'd gotten kind of dehydrated at the Memorial Day training runs and, uh, came back and had a, on a tempo run, had a calf cramp and it just balled up. And, and I started doing research and thought it might be magnesium. And I hadn't been really supplementing magnesium at that point. And you and I talked and you kind of confirmed what I'd been researching. And so I got on magnesium and started doing a bunch of uh, Epsom salt soaks. And, um, it took a little while to get on top of it. Cause I got, it got so tight and balled up. I got massage and kind of got it on top of it, but I didn't get to do my final, like kind of fine tuning working workouts for Western States. So my downhill speed wasn't quite there. Or my tempo pace, you know, kind of cruising pace was a little slower than normal. Um, but I just kind of like, you know, chalked it up to like, okay, I got a lot of experience. I've been doing these for 16 years. You know, that's going to be my 20, that was going to be my 2400. So I was just like, you know, I'll just have to go on experience. Yeah. But you also remember, I think the audience also needs to know, not only did you win and set the course record on that hundred K in the spring, but you and Jesse, just because of timing and everything all of a sudden worked out and you had the people to film it, you guys did that little, almost on a lark, you did that little uh, trek of the Oahe, which is not very many people know about the Oahe Canyon and, and, and how epic that was and how difficult that was. Yeah, that was way more, it was way more difficult than we were anticipating. How many like, miles in how many days? We were trying to do 170 miles in four days, which to a hundred mile racer doesn't sound like that much, but when it's mostly off trail following GPS waypoints on a, you know, you know, uh, and not a trail, um, it's pretty gnarly. And, and, and how you actually had GPS waypoints down there? Because I, I, I think you'd even have trouble picking up satellites in that Canyon because it's well, so narrow. Well, we didn't really have, we had a really good like uh, technology setup. So we were able to follow, you know, using a GPS on our phones, GPS app. Um, and then we had a, also a satellite tracker. Um, so we were able to like, that wasn't a big deal. And we'd done a ton of like research um, up front, I'd been, no one knew this, but I've been working on that project for like 14 months trying to put it together. And, uh, so once we did it, um, we really, uh, I mean, we ended up trying to do 170 miles in four days. We ended up doing 142 miles in four days and we only had four days. So we had to be back in Bend by Friday night. We left, we started on a Tuesday morning. Um, we had a, a group with us. We had kind of a support crew and, uh, and so it just, it was all off trail and a lot of lava rock and, and canyoneering. And, you know, the first day, 12 and a half hours, 29 miles. Um, and it was. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, Naomi, I, I know about the Oahe Canyon. I've flown over it and it's, it's just, and I know people who've rafted it and it is just one of the most difficult, treacherous thing so i can only imagine what it was like well it's one of the it's one of the the largest undeveloped area in the lower 48 um so it just has some primitive roads has one highway that bisects it in the middle through rome oregon so you know it's southeastern oregon and so it's it's a huge canyon that that drops it's a 
it's basically a big canyon, a tributary of the Snake River. So drops into the Snake River heading north. Um, anyway. Yeah, when you fly over it, there's this huge, it's just a big plateau. And then all of a sudden there's this crack. It's just a crevasse in yep. the middle of nowhere. It's gigantic. And it, it looks gigantic as a crevasse, but as the canyon goes, it's tiny compared to like the Grand Canyon or Zion. Right. And so it's like, it, it was really hard. It was hard running and um, it kind of turned epic on us. So we both had, a, Jesse and I both had a little tendonitis, lower leg tendonitis from all the off trail stuff um, after that. And and that was beginning at first week of May, you know, so I, I'm sure I had some leftover messed up stuff that co- contributed to the calf cramping after Memorial Day training runs um, on the Western States course. So uh, I'm sure that's part of it. Um, but then, you know, it is what it is. We, we did it and it was fun and hard and, but anyway, going into Western States, um, you know, uh, I was a little, I felt a little stale because I hadn't got the kind of training I normally would get going into a hundred. And I just had to taper like really early and, uh, and, and did a lot of cycling, you know, the last three weeks, um, with little short 20, 30 minute runs. Um, after I'd be on my bike for an hour, hour and a half, and then I would go run for 20 or 30 minutes at the end. And, um, a couple times had to walk home because my calf hurt. Um, but then, you know, it started healing. Um, I, you know, by all, I didn't get it officially diagnosed, but by all research, I think I had kind of a level one micro tear in my calf. Um, and so had to let that thing heal and I couldn't do hills and I could just hike and, and jog a little bit and, that was kind of my long taper for Western States, but you know, I just kind of had to roll with it. I was able to do a 10 mile trail run about a week before the race and I it, everything felt good. And that was kind of my mental like, okay, I'm ready to race. I think I'll be okay. Um, and then went into the race and everything was fine. I never, it never bothered me during the race. Well, you ran steady and just ran through the field the entire day. So, I mean, not bad to come up on a on a third place podium finish, especially since the field has gotten younger and faster every year. Totally. And and that's I mean, that race always has carnage. I mean, there's always like there's just too many fast guys in it and it's too hard to not go out fast. And there's so much downhill, it's easy to run a little too hard early. And uh knowing that, I just totally, you know, kind of laid back all day and then slowly added, you know, brought pressure. I had been doing a lot of power hike workouts, getting ready for hard rock. Um, even with my calf bothering me, I could still hike. So I was doing some power hike, steep, steeper power hike workouts just to get ready. And so my hiking was good. And so I was able to like, you know, kind of work my way through the field and the canyons early and then, and then kind of bring it from Forest Hill in. So, Okay, well, and that 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 resulted in a. I mean, I think you got as much press on the on your finish as Jim did for getting lost. I mean, poor uh, Matt Lane didn't get much press. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it was it was. Uh, I felt bad for Jim. You know, I I I've talked to him at Hard Rock. He was hanging out at Hard Rock, and I talked to him after Western States. And you know, he'll he's smart kid, and he'll come back smarter and stronger next year. And he'll scout the course a little more. And, and I'd say for anybody running against him next year, watch out. Yeah. 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 So are you going to run against him next year, Jeff? Oh yeah. I'm going back for sure. You know, Western States giving you the, the top 10 get automatic bursts back in. So, um, I'm, I'm definitely coming back. So it will be fun. 
So, so tell us about Between Western States and Hard Rock. What did you do? How'd you feel? I mean, you had 19 days between, yeah. t- between running a hot, hard hundred and then turning around and running a, a hard, high altitude hundred. Not so hot, but hard, high altitude. I mean, you're really hiking, right? It, it, yeah, it ended up being hot. So, I mean, for, for, for Hard Rock, but, but, you know, we had gorgeous weather. But, you know, recovery-wise... Um, I walked, I immediately started walking. Like I think West, you know, I got done with Weather States, drove back on Sunday and I went for a walk on Monday. Um, I walked every day that week at lunch, about 45 minutes. Um, Just getting moving again. I waited to run for seven days. I think I ran on Sunday. So seven days after hard or after Western States, I went for a little jog with my wife, like 30 minutes with some hike breaks and really slow. And, um, and everything felt okay. There was no weird, weird stuff going on. So I knew it was just normal fatigue. And so I ran, I think four or five days in a row, 20, 30 minute runs, 40 minute runs, um, just to get moving again. And then, um, I took off for hard rock on the Friday before. So 12 days after Western States, I was in Colorado camping at Cunningham Gulch at about 10,400 feet. Um, and hiking on the course and doing some little, just little short jog breaks on the downhills and flats. Um, but just got up, got up high every day, 13, 14,000 feet, went up on Sunday the, before the race and summited Han- Handy's Peak. Um, took a long time to do it. You know, it's a 10 mile round trip, but, um, you know, I think I took four, over four hours to do it. So I took breaks and we, we like hiked a lot and talked to people and, and jogged and I did a few like pickups on the downhill just to see how my legs felt and they felt really good. Um, and then got out on the course Monday, Tuesday, and then shut it down and moved into Silverton about 1100 feet lower. Silverton's about 9,300 feet and, uh, just chilled and did a little 40 minute shakeout the day before the race. Um, and everything was feeling really good going into the race. So I was feeling confident you know, going into that, I felt more confident going into Hard Rock, I think, than I did Western States because I'd had so many issues right before Western States. Um, just because I, you know, th- there was a mental aspect there that was like, oh, I'm not sure, I'm not sure, you know, with the calf and everything. But um, I felt really good going into Western or into Hard Rock. So I was just, you know, but you never know. I've done, I've run hundreds back to back before, three weeks apart, but, but, and it went okay, but. I wasn't, you never know until you're about 30, 40 miles in, whether you're going to be like dead legs or feel okay. If your legs feel okay, it's probably going to be a pretty good day. If you feel dead, it might be kind of a death march that day. Yeah. I remember seeing the tweet tweets on I run far and everybody, they were commenting on how good you looked. Yeah, I felt good. And I didn't push early. Um, the pace went out mellower than it normally does. Like last time I was a hard rock in 2014, the pace went out crazy fast at the beginning. And this year they kind of, everybody kind of laid back and was mellow and just being social the first climb. And besides Xavier, he took off, um, early. He was like in the lead, but like, you know, Killian and Jason Slarb and everybody were hanging back and we all hung out and talked on the first climb. And then I kind of ran with Nick Clark and, um, and Troy Howard for a while. And in the early miles, you know, first couple climbs and downhills, we were like kind of together and, then I kind of just ended up being by myself going into Telluride and, um, and was in fifth place, Telluray, and felt good through all that. I didn't feel bad. And 
Um, I was having a little bit of a foot, you know, like a, I had a maceration on my right ball of my foot after Western States because I didn't do any sock changes or shoe changes at all. And so I had a little, you know, you get the little kind of fold in your skin. I had a little fold. Um, and that, that ends up, you know, basically having some dead skin and it has to peel off and slough off, which sucks when you're trying to run another 119 days later. Um, but you know, it was okay. I had to kind of do some maintenance on it a couple times in Telluride and Uray and at Grouse. I had to like just put some lube on it and change socks at one at Grouse. And, but it got better throughout the race. It just seemed the more, more I lubed it and kept, kept being proactive and take care of it, it, it quit bothering me. And then I, and pretty soon I wasn't even thinking about it and it felt good the second half of the race. Um, I did do some acrobatics trying to keep my feet dry in some of the creek crossings, um, you know, with my poles and doing some pole vaulting and that kind of stuff and taking a little longer to cross a creek than I normally would instead of just plunging in. But, um, but yeah, I felt good. You know, the whole second half, my legs were there the whole time, like downhill legs were good. The only thing that gets you in hard rock is you're pushing at altitude and, and, and at some point, at least for me in my experience, the, the last three climbs are always tough because you've been pushing your lungs the whole time. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's just, you don't have that upper gear anymore. It just, your lungs are your limiting factor from the altitude and you're getting a little bit of a pulmonary edema a little bit and hacking a little bit. And so you just have to back off on pace on climbs and just plod along getting up the climb. And then once you get to the top, I still had downhill legs so I could like fly downhill. Um, Definitely brought it on the last downhill to trying to like get a certain time I was shooting for, but um, yeah, it was good though. How was your mental focus and your mental state during that? It was good. You know, it was bad when early when I first, like at mile 18, when I felt the ball of my foot stinging a little bit, I was like, no, I can't deal with this. It's 18 miles in like this. I still got 82 miles to go. Like this is not right. And so that's when I was like, okay, I got to take care of it. You know, as soon as I got at mile 28, when I got to, or 27 or 28, whatever Telluride is, that's when I immediately took care of it. And then it felt okay. It was feeling fine on the uphills. I just felt it on the downhills a little bit. Um, but it seemed to get better the longer I went, the longer I was out. Um, so I'm thankful that that didn't like get worse. Um, but, you know, I just kind of had to, you know, like anything in ultras, if it's something's hurting a little, you got to push it down. and. Um, you just got to kind of ignore it and make friends with it. So you took you took an hour, 21 minutes off the existing Western States Hard Rock Double, right? Yeah, something like that. I think it's like 121 or 120. I don't know exactly. I haven't even figured up the exact. I'm working on a blog post, so I'll have the exact to the second. But, um, you know, uh, Nick and I had a little gentleman's agreement because he had run... Uh, a year, the year he had done what, uh, hard rock, they had a, a detour at Telluride and he had to do an extra two mile climb or something. It was like 102 miles that year instead of a hundred. So we had made a gentleman's agreement before the race that, uh, for me to get the record, I would give him 20 minutes a mile for those two extra miles. So that's 40 minutes. So I was going to have to run 40 minutes faster and instead of, I think I had to run like 2703 or faster at, at hard rock, but I had agreed that I had to run 2623 or faster to officially get it just between the two of us. Like, even though I would have got it on paper, 
So anyway, by running 25:42, I got it. Like yeah, fair, but fair uh, but square. but as we talked, I pointed out that the Nick the year Nick uh, set that record was also the snow course year for Western states, which and, is faster. Which is definitely faster. I I used to mark the high country courses, and the uh, they actually didn't even go into Robinson Flats. So you didn't have the Duncan Canyon climb up to Robinson that year. So I think all in all, you know. These things are are what they are, and you get what what that year and what that day gives you. So you know it's not taking away from Nick's record at all. It's just that that you know you were able to put together a couple of strings of, of great races. Yeah, totally. And I mean that that it, it this is all just like fun between Nick and I since we're friends, and you know he's very competitive, and he made that comment, and I was like, okay, well then I think I told Matt Trap right before the race i was like man i've got to put a like a a stamp on this then i gotta make sure i like break 26 so <laughs> just so he just so he can't talk any trash so anyway yeah it's great it's that all... you had that mindset before you started though that would have yeah. helped during the race race right yeah totally it did it really helped it helped me really push at the end coming off of a little giant because that's a pretty gnarly downhill and um I knew like coming into it, I was going to be close. And I, I personally wanted to break 26 hours on that course in 2014. And that's when I got pinned down by lightning by for 70 minutes during the race at night, um, in American basin. So, you know, I, I had secretly been wanting to get 2545 for, for a few years now. And, and so that was, that was always in, that was the splits I had was 2545 and ran a 2542. So, so um, I got what I wanted to get. Yeah. 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 Even better. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so next year, what's what's for next year? Well, I still have one more hundred this year. Um, running Run Rabbit Run and Steamboat in September. Um, Is that the beginning of September, Jeff? Mid September. Mid September. Wow, this is going to be perfect for you. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm fe- I feel good. I'm not feeling any pressure. Um, it's going to be good. I mean, uh, I, I think you're going to come back. Actually, I, I do believe you're going to be stronger for this race based on your Western States and hard rock stuff. You're going to just be able to really get that, you know, adapt to the stress you've just had and then sharpen it up and you're going to be bomb proof. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> Let's hope. Yeah. So, well, that's, that's the, that's the goal, right? That's the goal. Yep. Yeah. So and next year, you know, Western States will definitely be a focus next year. Um, you know, just wanting to get back in that race. And I definitely want to line up with the M3 bib. Pretty stoked about that. Um, but um, I think I'm probably going to put in for UTMB next year too. So do Western States UTMB, I think. Um, just because I got some unfinished business at UTMB after rolling my ankle last year at mile 11 and having to drop at Cormier. Um I, I really want to nail that race and um, I feel like it's my kind of race too. So uh, that that's definitely a focus next year, those two races. Well, super. Um, well, I think we ought to wrap it up at this point. Uh, Naomi, any questions, anything to? Yeah, I just had one more and that more so um, as a family member, like how do you feel um, about this as your lifestyle? Is it sustainable and like, is that something that your whole family can, can do? Like, you're not making five different meals or two different meals or 
Um, and is your family doing it now? Yeah, I have three kids um, who 14, 10, and 5. Um, my wife w- wanted to do, she already had like three paleo cookbooks in the house. And I had just been the one that was holding out saying, I need rice and my rice and potatoes. And, uh, cause I'm an endurance athlete. And so, um, when I finally caved, she was like, well, I already have cookbooks. And so we basically just concentrated on it. Okay. To answer your question. Yes. It's sustainable. In my opinion, I think this is a way we're meant to eat personally. You know, I, I don't think we're supposed to have very many grains. We haven't been farming that long as a human species, seven, nine, seven to 9,000 years, you know? So, um, you know, that's a blip in our DNA. So I, I think we really aren't really programmed to eat that way. I think we have problem with gluten. I think we have problem with phytic acid and it, it definitely stresses out our GI tract. And so, um, and, and I feel a lot better on this. And so for us, we just make sure that we, you know, we have tons of of fruits and fresh fruits and vegetables around the house always. So the kids can eat whatever they want, whenever they want. Um, we also add in a little more sweet potatoes, um, a little more starches for the kids, especially when they're growing like that. Um, you know, and tons of eggs. We have our own chickens. Um, so we have some backyard, we have four backyard chickens. Um, and so, you know, we, we just try to make sure that you know, and the other thing we do with our kids, and they've always been this way, and, and they're not like normal kids, in my opinion. They don't complain. We've never really fed them sugar that much, even when we were, uh, you know, on a very, you know, the uh, nourishing traditions diet. We were very, uh, we were, we didn't restrict it completely. Like, if they were at a birthday party, we'd let them have a cupcake. But, um, but we've also educated them the whole time. They're homeschooled. So we make sure that, you know, we've always been honest with them and we tell them why we're eating the way we are and, and the, the, you know, the science behind it and the, the, why we've made the decision we made and they've always been on board. And, you know, especially my oldest son is very much like he reads labels on nutri you know, he, he's like, you know, he won't let you eat anything that has GMO in it and he won't. He, and if it has sugar as one of the ingredients, he'll immediately call it out and say, we can't get this, you know? So, um, they're, they're, they're very good at policing themselves. And, and like I said, we do, you know, we'll do something fun every once in a while, like a good, like organic ice cream with like, you know, ice cream sundae or something, you know, for birthday, you know, or something like that. But we won't like go overboard, you know, we make sure that, you know, they know it's in moderation and that we enjoy it when we have it and we don't like sweat it. And, and then we're, you know, kind of on the straight and narrow the rest of the time. And, and I have to say these meals are good, man. When they're high in fat, they're satiating, they're satiating and, and you're satisfied when you walk away from the table. And, and they're rich. They're, they're rich. really rich yeah. and you don't overeat. I, I find that that's the one thing I've always had a problem with overeating. Like not that, you know, endurance in, in an endurance athlete, you can do that and still be at a good weight. But, you know, if I look at my family, my whole family is chronically like, well, my brother's on the, on, on kind of primal blueprint, 21 day challenge thing. And he's been doing it for like, I think eight, eight or nine weeks now. And he's lost a ton of weight. He was like, you know, 270 pounds, my height, five, nine, 270. So he's really, yeah, he's huge. And so he's lost like, you know, 50, 60 pounds. So like, and he feels great on it. So I know it works and I know, and he's like, I don't miss it. He goes, every other diet I've tried, he's like, I, I miss everything. 
He goes, on this one, I don't. He goes, I don't have crashes. I don't, I'm not like looking to eat another whole meal afterwards. I can't, I don't overeat because if you eat enough fat, your body says, whoa, like I'm yeah, done. And it's not just the fat. It's also the, the, the nutritional density of a lot of these foods. Like Absolutely. when you're eating organ meats and, and making broth out of skin and connective tissue, you get that nutritional balance. And I think your body sort of intuitively knows uh, that it doesn't need all the extra calories. Um, Absolutely. And it's really amazing when you get that nutrient dense food. What I'm finding um, is just how little you can eat and how well you feel like you've you've had that seminal moment in January when you got cleaned out. And it's like like I feel best when I'm working out the most and eating the least. Yeah. And I I find that I, I like at first I was like, wow, am I not eating enough calories? But my weight is stabilized at the same weight and I keep charting it and it's fine. I don't, I'm not losing any extra weight or anything like that. I'm just, I feel good. And I eat, I eat one helping. Like only time I eat double helpings is might be after like long runs or like three or four days after a race, like a hundred miler. I'm, I'm more hungry than I normally would be. Yeah. Conservatively, I, I calculate a 200 to 600 net weight stable caloric efficiency gain. I think it's a lot more than that. You probably agree with me, but just to be very conservative, it's easily 200 to 600 calories a day, less you have to eat and still stay weight stable. Yeah, yeah. I find I don't eat as much as I used to. I definitely don't eat as much like total calories per day. Um, Plus I was craving stuff all the time. My cravings, especially sugar, was off the hook. Like I just always chalked it up to having a sweet tooth. I didn't know what it was. Like I couldn't, but when I realized this, it's a, it's an insulin, it's probably my theory, at least I think it's an insulin issue, like where you're constantly having insulin response and then you're crashing and then it's overcompensating and then you're getting hungry again. And it messes with you when you have too much glucose in the bloodstream and now having a, that, that stable teaspoon that we talked about earlier, all of a sudden you're just like, you feel good all day. I don't really have any lows. If I skip a meal on accident or I'm too busy with work, I know that I'm fine and I just need to come back and like eat, eat when, when I have time and I'm going to be fine. I mean, it's just, I don't know. It, it, for me, it's like really sustainable once you make the mental shift to find the lifestyle habits that, that you need. Okay. For instance, and, and this, this is Naomi, this is kind of like bring it all around to your original question. Is it sustainable? What we ended up doing and understanding what it takes to make make a, a lifestyle change like this, we took every day we ate, you know, really easy breakfast with eggs, and then at lunch we'd eat a heavy salad and with with some leftover meat or something from the night before. And then so because that was all quick, we were my mom, my wife's homeschooling, I'm working, you know, we're we're running around doing activities with the kids. So evenings were every night that first like especially the first month. First four weeks we made the shift. We had a we had a cookbook against all grains, and um, we we basically made a new dish every night as a family. So we said, okay, let's try this dish, a new paleo dish every night. And what it ended up doing was creating all these cool new things that we were like, oh, don't really like that recipe. That sucks. Oh, we're not gonna do that one again. But then there'd be for every one there'd be five where we'd be whoa. This is such a good meal. And we'd be sitting there just like, you know, when you're, I don't know if you've seen What About Bob, the movie, but when Bob's sitting at the dinner table just going, mmm, 
oh, mm, mm. <laughs> that's how I felt every night. Like we would make these good dishes and they were like new. And we were like, we got to make this again. This has got to be a staple. And so we made, we, out of that, we just have all the, we had all these staples that came out. And I think that's, that's really what it's about. It's like intentionally focusing on new comfort foods. You know, my son took a cooking class and he started baking paleo bread for a snack like once a week. He'd like make something fun. And so that was fun for the kids, you know? And my wife would and I would enjoy some of it in moderation and we'd let the kids go to town. Like if they wanted to eat it all, we didn't care. But like, just like that kind of stuff, like just trying to find ways to like have new habits, create new habits, get rid of your old habits because your old habits aren't healthy and, and create new habits that are healthy and foods you really crave. And then after a while, you keep making those foods and then you're like, oh, what should we make tonight? Oh, well, let's make that one thing, you know? And, and that's, that, that was our, I think, probably the, our, our road to success. Well, I think what, what you're also saying, getting animated about this and seeing Naomi's responses here on the, on the video feed, you know, I think the other thing is to keep it curious and fun because we're naturally born to be curious and have fun and we gravitate to that when we, yeah. when we want to and, and we get out of that fear factor mode like, oh, we have to have this right, the right macros, the right number of calories and then all of a sudden this becomes fun and and curious and it's like, okay, what can we do next? And then it, it starts this whole journey and it just kind of feeds on itself. Yeah, you know, and I think that that's a good point because one of the things that I've had a lot of questions about this, you know, I it definitely brought about some, you know, a lot of people wanted to know like exactly what I was doing. What are you eating every day? And all these things. And I didn't really sweat it. You know, I like, once we made the kind of that first four weeks of finding new things, I, I mean, people were like, how many carbohydrates are you having a day? I'm like, I have no clue. Like I can, I could guess, like, I think I charted it two days, you know, where I was like, oh yeah, I'm about 85 today. And some days I'm 150. You know, it depends on the, how much I'm training. And I just go according to my, like, my, my cravings. Like, if I'm really hungry for a little more fruit one day, I'll eat more fruit and not sweat it. And, you know, other people are asking, like, you know, have you been, you know, charting your ketone levels and all that kind of stuff? And I'm like, no. Like, I haven't even bought one time bought a pea stick. So, like, I'm, I, this whole time, I just let my body naturally do what it's doing, and it's taking care of itself. My weight's stabilized. I feel great. My energy levels are good. You know, I feel really good. I'm racing well. Like, I don't really have an issue. I'm just listening to my body and eating under a, a certain food list, and that just means cutting out grains and sugar and legumes. Yeah, well, just basically eating in the way that our, the evolutionary pressure shaped us, and, and that's what people forget is... The evolutionary shape, pressures that shaped us or the intelligent design that shaped us, you know, primitive man wasn't out there peeing on sticks or testing his blood ketones or, <laughs> right. or, or, or weighing his food. He was just going out there and doing it, you know, and primitive yeah, totally. women too, Naomi. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Like, I just think that, I think Jeff, you're doing great because one, you're not stressing about things Two, you're not, um, you know, overstressing on the detail of, of the smaller detail it's the bigger picture stuff you know like you you've got that intuition with your body and and you can feel that you're feeling good with with the foods that you're eating so you're not saying oh well i'm hungry but i can't eat anything because that'll that'll put me over my macros for the day or my calories for the day so i just think that it's um amazing how it's just done so naturally without even having to worry about it yeah absolutely 
Yeah, except for that, except for that initial hard reset, everything is once you become, you know, have that hard reset take place and you're exercising at the level you're doing, it just becomes it opens up a whole new window that is not only sustainable, but it's just downright easy. And, and I think people have a hard time believing it until they get that experience. They, I think they when, when you tell them how easy and sustainable it is and how good you feel and they see how good you're doing, there's this disconnect that this isn't real. Well, I think the, I, I have to, I, I would put a side note here. I did take the time in the first month. I, in, I, this is what I do. One of my habits is whenever I start something new, I kind of get all, like I said, I jump in with both feet. And I, I definitely understood like that we needed to create new habits, but I also took the time to educate myself the first four weeks. I, I, kinda, I read three or four books in the first three, four weeks, you know, Bullock and Finney's book, um, The Art and Science of Low-Carb Living. I, I wanted to understand the, the science behind it. And I just, that what for me personally, I needed that backup mentally to know, okay, I'm eating. And then I, I also read um, The Big Fat Surprise, um, which is kind of like, you know, why why uh, saturated fat and, and cholesterol were, have been demonized and why the science behind it's pretty shoddy. Um, and that, that really, those couple books and, and the and primal blueprint and, and all the OFM information you have on your site, Peter. Um, like I just like in, I inhaled all that stuff and I just needed it mentally for me as an athlete. And I, I you know, I'm, I'm a, the type that is kind of, you know, I coach people too. And I needed to understand the background behind it. And I need to understand that I was doing the right thing from a, from a scientific perspective too, that it wasn't just like, you know, a fad thing. And so I think that helped to back up like what I was doing was right. And, and then everything else was just, you know, uh, data that backed it up, you know, the way I felt and intuit intuition and all that stuff. And then it becomes intuitive after that for me, like it was just that first four weeks was like crash course. And then, and, and then it was, then it was all smooth sailing after that. I haven't really had an issue. I don't really crave sugar anymore. You know, I kind of, and I also, I think, I think another thing that's important is to understand that like, you know, understanding what sugar does to your system and how it knocks your immune system down and how it's so, it's just not good for you. And so understanding that and why it is bad for you is really like knowledge is power. And so when you, you know, when you go to a, a coffee shop and you see a big, you know, pastry or something, I don't look at it and go, oh, that would be so good. I think of it like, hmm, that's going to make me feel like crap. And I know it's like poison. And, you know, it's just like anything. It's just like you wouldn't pick up a bottle of poison and drink it. It's the same thing. You look at it and say, that's poison in my system and understanding that it's poison. And I can have it like every once in a while on a rare occasion in a very moderate amount, but I'm not going to go like throw 10 teaspoons of glucose into my bloodstream right now because I know I'm going to feel like crap. And I have to say I did cheat a couple of times in that first six weeks and I felt horrible. I crashed, went to bed early, just like tanked. We did like a pizza and I was just like felt horrible for about two days. Arthritis, constipation, crap. Yeah. Oh, and I just felt horrible. Like the next day I got up and I was just like super hungry. Like I hadn't had that hungry pains and the, the hunger pangs in the like pit of your stomach. I hadn't had that because it was, it was about four weeks in. 
And so I'd already been fat adapting and like I wasn't having crashes during the day. And all of a sudden that was like, kind of like that just reiterated that I was like, uh, like I shouldn't be putting this stuff in my system. Like once you have a clean system, it's like even more clean than I'd ever known. And all of a sudden I was like, whoa, that really messes up. Like I can tell I'm getting like something's going on with my blood sugar and my insulin. And, and so I, I don't know, I think listen, learning to, I think one thing ultra running teaches you is, is sometimes not all people get it, but it teaches you to listen to your body some and, and, and listen to that feedback that your body's giving it. Does it feel like crap? Does it feel good? You know? And, and I just had a new level of clean, you know, and I, and I think it really like just reiterated that, you know, I needed to not be putting that junk in my body. Yeah. Hey Jeff, is there anything else you want to say to our listeners today? Oh, anything else? I would say just don't be afraid to like follow this stuff out, like like sleuth it out, like read on it. If you're not sure, like you know, get out there and read. I I highly recommend reading the Big Fat Surprise. It's a very entertaining read, and it will you will understand the the environment of Scientific America and. Um, how it can really be manipulated by money and, um, and by someone who thinks they're right and isn't necessarily right. So I think those kind of things, like just, you know, don't be afraid to read. Don't be afraid to try it. Stick it out. You got to at least do something three weeks. If you're going to test it out, you got to do it three weeks. Don't, you can't do it two days and go, ah, oh, this isn't for me. I can't do it. Yeah, if, you, if you're an athlete, though, and you, you want to get the performance, you really want to stick it out about three months. Absolutely. Eight to 12 weeks. Like, that's where, like, I really was feeling like when I hit hurt at seven weeks, I was starting to feel really good. And I think that's where where you, you just have to, like, it's like anything. There's no shortcut and there's no, like, secret pill, you know, to anything. It's just, like, you you, you have to, you have to, like, commit to something and you have to kind of stick it out even when it's hard. Like definitely was hard a week in, you know, I was like, Oh man, I don't know if I can do this. I was like, I was hangry, you know, hungry and angry at the same time. And you know, I didn't have any of the metabolic pathways open yet, but it makes sense to me like that. It takes weeks for our metabolic pathways to really open up that, that just makes sense. And, and we're, you know, we are not meant to eat the high carbohydrate processed carbohydrate load that we take, we take in. And understanding the background of like, I mean, I'll get on my soapbox here, but, you know, understanding that, understanding that grains aren't the same grains they were 2000 years ago or a thousand years ago, you know, they've been hybridized and to have higher gluten count, higher phytic acid count to be a pest deterrent, you know, and that is, you know, on our, it's slightly toxic to humans. And so understanding that, that there's a level of toxicity when you are consuming a high level of grains, just understanding like the grains today aren't the same grains that were, you know, years and years and years ago. Just understanding that, just educate yourself. Like, you know, like I said, knowledge is power. And, and if, if we keep just, you know, Amer Americans are so unhealthy right now. I mean, I look at my family and like everyone's on pills, everyone's overweight. You know, it's just like really sad to see them just deteriorating in their 30s and 40s and 60s. Like my parents are 69 years old and they sh my dad shouldn't be in a wheelchair. You know, it's all from bad eating habits. Well, and and the Australians aren't too far behind us, right? You're like second. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, I think we better wrap it today. Um, we got a 
got a great recording here. And uh, thanks so much, Jeff. Uh, we're looking forward. Thanks, to- Jeff. Thanks, Naomi. Thanks, Peter. <laughs> we're looking forward to see you do Run, Rabbit, Run. Um, and um, let's uh, keep this uh, rolling. And um, yeah, good luck. Thanks, buddy.